Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, Season 5 from KFEI Community Radio. Glass breaking and the screams and sirens. And the room was wall-to-wall gay men. During my lifetime, I had the FBI wanted to know if I was a communist. This season, stories about Minnesota history. I'm Ahanti Young. James Garrett Jr. is an architect at Formula Architects. His family has deep ties in the St. Paul Rondo neighborhood. During his childhood in St. Paul, James fell in love with buildings and the bustle of urban landscapes. Today, he builds these buildings with an eye toward creating dense, lively, and inclusive urban spaces. Nationwide, black architects make up only 2% of the industry. In Minnesota, less than 1% of architects are black. Formula is one of the only black-owned architecture firms in Minnesota. Reporter Katie Thornton speaks with James Garrett Jr. about his life, his passion for architecture, and how community-driven design can be a type of activism. One summer in the mid-1990s, James Garrett Jr. was home from college at UC Berkeley, where he was studying architecture. He was at his grandparents' house on Western Avenue in St. Paul. And I was in the living room with them watching a game, I think a baseball game or something, and my grandmother asked me to go into the basement and to find something for her, a box, and bring it up. So when I went down the steps and I turned on the lights and I went in the back, start looking at the boxes, I started to observe there's steel columns in our basement. And I was like, this is not typical residential construction. You know, I was starting to learn about residential construction and, you know, wood frame structures and stuff. I was like, what the hell? The steel columns brought his eyes up to the ceiling where he found some intricately fastened joints. Again, not standard wood frame construction for a mid-century rambler. I went back upstairs and I said, Grandma, did an architect design this house? And then my grandfather looked up from the newspaper. He said, well, huh, my godfather, Uncle Cat, designed this house. And I was like, Uncle Cap? He was like, Clarence Wigington, former city architect, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, what? Not too many years after James's grandfather, Jim Griffin, was born in 1906, his mother passed away. Uncle Cap stepped in to help raise Jim. Clarence Wigington was the first black municipal architect in the country, serving St. Paul from 1915 to 1949. He moved up from draftsman to chief architect and was literally the force behind some of the most famous buildings that we have here in the city. Wigington designed the Highland Park Water Tower, a number of park and pavilion buildings, the Holman Field Airport Building, Roy Wilkins Auditorium, and tons of St. Paul Public School buildings. Nearly 60 of his buildings are still standing in St. Paul. James knew about other leading architects who worked in Minnesota, like Cass Gilbert, who designed the Capitol, or Clarence Johnston, who designed a lot of early 1900s hospitals and school buildings. But this chance conversation with his grandparents was James's introduction to Wigington. You know, here he was this impeccable, nationally recognized black architect with these other great architects that I'd been learning about, you know, Cass Gilbert and, and Clarence Johnston. And here there's this third 
face for the St. Paul Mount Rushmore, who happened to look like me and helped raise my grandfather. Decades after James's great-grandmother passed away, Cap stepped in to help James's grandfather again, this time not just as a family member, but as an architect at a time of need. In the late 1950s, James's grandparents' original home, the home that had been in their family for a generation, was taken. It was claimed for eminent domain by the city of St. Paul and leveled to make way for Interstate 94. James's grandparents and their neighbors received only a small settlement for their loss. Uncle Cap told them, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of you. Just, you know, take this little settlement money and find a, a lot somewhere and, you know, I'll help you figure out the rest. Before their house was taken, James's grandparents had lived on Rondo Avenue, the namesake street of the surrounding neighborhood, a neighborhood that was demolished to make way for the interstate. In the early and mid-1900s, Rondo was the heart of St. Paul's largest Black community. It was the financial center of the historically Black community, too, the main street of Black commerce, home to social and professional clubs, food co-ops, and credit unions. Some 300 businesses and 600 houses were destroyed. Residents were forcibly removed from their homes when they refused to leave. We have had Black neighborhoods in particular, Black healthy main streets, intentionally destroyed under the auspices of the Federal uh, Highway Act and creating these freeways and this necessary infrastructure. That same intentional routing of interstates through thriving Black neighborhoods happened across the U.S., including in Nashville, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Syracuse, Miami, Minneapolis, and others. James knew that history well. His grandfather Jim wrote a memoir called A Son of Rondo, which he dedicated to his precocious grandson's incessant questions about the old neighborhood. Because by the time James was a child, all that was left of the family home on Rondo Avenue were his grandfather's stories. James has known he's wanted to be an architect since he was a kid, in kindergarten or first grade. You know, I didn't have the vocabulary at that time, the words architecture and urban design and such, but I just knew that whatever this thing is with all the people and with the cities and with the buildings, whatever this is, this is what I want to be doing uh, for the rest of my life. By the time he was in junior high, James was already taking elaborate mental notes of his physical surroundings. Every weekday, he'd take the bus from his parents' house on the east side of St. Paul. He'd get off in Lower Town and walk through Mears Park to catch the Grand 3rd Street bus to his school near Mac Groveland. And along the way, he'd find himself transfixed with the construction downtown. On his way to catch his second bus, he'd sometimes stop in Mears Park and sit down and just watch as a skyscraper was built, story by story. I counted the floors. I was noting whether it was steel or concrete being erected or poured. You know, I would literally just sit there for hours and just be fascinated watching the construction site. And I'd be late to school every day and I'd get in trouble and I'd be in, you know, um, in school detention and I have to stay after school or whatever. Um, 
But for me, it didn't matter because I knew what I loved and I ultimately knew what I was going to do with my life. And so if the price of me watching, you know, being fascinated in, and watching these these buildings be built was, you know, I get in trouble and I have to spend an hour in, in school detention, then so be it. I just bring some books and make good time of it. Decades later, James would live in one of those skyscrapers. And back in junior high, when he was watching his future home get built, he was already drawing, already beginning to create. And it wasn't long before his parents could see his love of architecture, too. My parents discovered a notebook that I had where I had drawn all the buildings to scale um, in downtown Minneapolis and downtown St. Paul. And I had even created a couple imaginary cities. In those imaginary cities, James had drawn all these skyscrapers. He was captivated by the structures. So his parents brought him on a road trip to Chicago. Before too long, I had memorized, you know, the heights and the details of all the skyscrapers and, you know, 1,454 feet to the top of the, the Willis Tower and 1,025 feet to the top of the John Hancock building and on and on and on. So they were like, okay, yeah, this kid is, he's got, he's got the bug, the architect bug. At the time, James was kind of surprised at his parents' unflinching support for his passion. Because, he says, projects like Interstate 94's racist and destructive legacies mean that there was, and still is, a lot of mistrust of architects and urban planners, especially among urban communities and members of Black and Indigenous communities and communities of color. There's these really insidious things that have intentionally been pointed, these loaded guns that have been repeatedly pointed and fired um, at black folks and, and brown folks and indigenous folks for a long period of time here. And so there is a justified and healthy skepticism of anything that even looks or sounds similar. Looking back, James thinks that the legacy of Cap Wagington, his grandfather's own godfather and the first black municipal architect in the nation, might have helped his parents understand and encourage his dream of becoming an architect. There were very few, there are very few black architects here in Minnesota. To this day, there's 15 of us. And I assume there were probably even fewer when I was a kid. Today, black architects make up only 2% of the field's workforce nationwide. In Minnesota, that number is 0.6%. Access to a field that's been weaponized against people like James's ancestors is wildly inequitable. And James says that disparity has an effect on the physical designs of buildings. I wanted to enter this profession to make change. The buildings that we live in, the homes that we purchase and inhabit, the schools that we go to, the vast majority of them were not designed by architects of color. The vast majority of them were not built by builders of color. The vast majority of them were not meant to be accessible to people of color. Black people and, and brown people literally inhabit cities and neighborhoods and communities that were not designed with them in mind and really were not for them. James says that one of the biggest problems he faces is what he calls Paul Bunyanism, when folks who are often white, often didn't grow up in a diverse urban environment and are implicitly or explicitly biased against things like density, 
end up being the designers and decision makers in urban environments. You're also dealing with folks a lot of times that really have a, a very incomplete comprehension of what cities are and why the density and diversity of cities is really critical in the vibrance and success of urban environments. And you start to end up with places that look like and feel like nowhere. It's a recipe for banal, mediocre, really half-assed built environments that do not support people and do not inspire people. As soon as James started studying architecture, he says he saw how some architects kept their plans somewhat under wraps until they'd already made their design decisions. At that point, they might hold a community meeting, but they'd speak in industry-specific terminology and make it difficult for members of the affected communities to participate, or when needed, to push back on plans that didn't take their needs into account. This uneven power dynamic was something that I detested and it was something that I felt was completely unacceptable. And I looked for opportunities to basically kick it in the face and say, this is trash and there are better ways to do it. And we wanted to lead that by example. In 2017, James seized an opportunity to demonstrate how the design process could look different. His company, Formula, got a bid for a project called Great River Landing in Minneapolis's North Loop. It's a housing development built for 72 men who have been experiencing homelessness or are at risk of homelessness due to prior incarceration. The first thing that we did, we said to bear with us that we're gonna, we're gonna arrive at a very important place, but the route that we're gonna take is gonna be a little different from previous projects and previous design teams that you've worked with, so please bear with us. They held eight engagement sessions. They talked with the funders as well as the staff who worked with the men. And six of those sessions were devoted to hearing from the men themselves, the future residents of the buildings. And those men brought up something that neither James's team nor the funders or staff had said. By the end of the, the process, we understood very clearly that these men were about their families, that recidivism was best fought by reuniting these men who have been separated from their families with their kids in particular. And so this became a family building. James and his team changed their designs according to that need. They made a children's play area for supervised visits and had space outside for the kids too, with a toddler play area and a jungle gym and a grassy field to play ball. And since Great River Landing opened in 2017, it's been really widely embraced by the residents and the neighborhood. By engaging the community early in the design process, the physical building ended up changing into something James says he couldn't have designed alone. This was something that uh, the clients, um, the service providers, nobody else said anything about, but we learned that directly from the men. That dialogue between architects and building users is rare, and access to the field of architecture hasn't been extended equitably across communities. So James says it can be hard to know exactly what other design changes would come from an architectural field that's more diverse and collaborative. But slowly, he says, projects like Great River Landing, which are designed with input from the people who will live there, are getting built. And he says, to the people using the buildings, it's obvious when they've been taken into account. Those places and those spaces can be compared and contrasted to these other things that 
are not of and from and in league with people and neighborhoods and justice and inclusion. And it starts to become very clear the difference between certain spaces and others. James has said that he doesn't believe architecture can change the world. But he says that by having designs that are actually intended to serve the needs of diverse urban communities, the built environment can help foster the conversations that will lead to change. And at a time of continued state violence against unarmed Black people, nationwide and here in the Twin Cities, he says that architecture has an important role in contributing to lasting social change. Things that have been built have to be torn down and have to be destroyed at some point so that they can be renewed and that they can be built back again. Buildings have to be demolished to make room, you know, old buildings that have fulfilled their purpose or their useful life have to give way so that other things can come into existence. It is like that in society as well. Old institutions and old ideas have to be destroyed in order for something new to be built in their place to supplant them, but to be built based upon new values, new goals, new hopes, dreams, and aspirations. That stage, the rebuilding stage, is where James sees his and his fellow community-driven architects, activist art coming into play. When the smoke clears and the dust settles, we have the ability to visualize, imagine, and create that new thing that supplants the old thing that had to be destroyed and had to come down. This story was produced by writer, podcaster, and historian Katie Thornton. Katie Thornton and James Garrett Jr. first met when Katie interviewed James for her episode of 99% Invisible about the intrigue and the inequities of the Twin Cities Skyway system. You can hear that episode at 99percentinvisible.org or read more at Katie Thornton's website, itskatiethornton.com or on her Instagram at It's Katie Thornton. You can learn more about James Garrett Jr.'s work and the work of all the other Formula architects, including their work on transit stops and pocket parks at the number 4RMULA.com. Support for the Mini Culture Podcast comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Support also comes from the Hennepin History Museum. Some of our music comes from the Blue Dot Sessions on the Free Music Archive. The Mini Culture Podcast on KFAI is edited by Melissa Olson and Ryan Dawes. Until next time, I'm Ahanti Young. Peace.